James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you've ever seen the movie Friday Night Lights, you know that they take their high school football very seriously in the Lone Star State of Texas. Folks that work there on the ranches or on the oil drilling rigs consider those Friday night prep games to be the highlight of their week. It's not unusual for five to 10,000 people to cram into the stadiums of those high school games and watch a game between high school rivals. Even schools that don't have a big enough student body to be able to field a regulation team still play six-man football. I'm telling you that to let you know that especially in Texas, the words athlete and hero are pretty much interchangeable, at least on a local level. Athletes were and are the heroes in many Texas high schools, which makes it all the more difficult if you're not athletically gifted if you grew up in one of those situations, and especially if you happen to be a guy and you are not athletically gifted, if you realize, for example, as early as elementary school that you were no athlete, that you were the, you were the very last to be chosen even for pickup games during recess, if you did get into a baseball game, for example, and you did, in the off chance, happen to make it to first base, you forgot to turn left, and you wound up at the local Piggly Wiggly. You know what I'm talking about. What you did in those situations was rationalized, that even though it hurt not to be picked for anyone's team, that it didn't, it didn't really hurt all that much. After all, it is just a silly game. Who needs it? I don't care if I'm not picked. I'd just as soon sit it out. It was a lie. But those kinds of thoughts at least protected many a fragile ego. And so you did sit it out, and you sat it out lots of times. But the game of life doesn't work that way. You can't sit this one out. You're in the game, you have to play whether you feel up to it or not. And since you do, and you are, then you ought to play to win. And if you look at it the right way, and if you read the right instruction manual, it's not really that hard. You can win. And I'm here this morning to talk about how that you can do that. And I believe that you can find the key to that kind of victory, to winning the game of life, all wrapped up in one simple word. And the key word is the word that's found in our text. It's the word persistence. That's what James said in our text. I remind you that the trials of life, he said, should be met with at least some degree of gratification because of their end result. What he actually said was, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And he explains that by telling us that the testing of our faith can produce patience. That's the King James Version. But you don't have to look very far to find that the word patience there really means perseverance or persistence or even the word endurance would be a good substitute for the word patience in this passage. And that the development of this endurance will eventuate in a full-grown spiritual state. That is, if you want to and you really are serious about getting to where you need to be spiritually, 
in terms of your spiritual maturation process, the only way that you're going to do that is by hanging in there, by persisting, by developing the kind of endurance that can get you not only to the beginning of the race, but to the end of the race. And that was also the uninspired conclusion of a fellow by the name of Napoleon Hill. Some of you are familiar with Napoleon Hill. He's the one who wrote the book some years ago entitled uh, Think and Grow Rich. And he went all over the country a few years back talking about how to be successful. And he himself knew what he was talking about because he was a very successful businessman. In fact, Mr. Hill spent 20 years studying the lives and the careers of some of the most famous and successful men in America, at least up until that time. And he said, and I'm quoting Hill now, He said, the one indispensable ingredient, the common element in the success stories of all of these men was persistence. These individuals kept trying even after repeated failures. Great success was only won by people who overcame incredible obstacles and great discouragement. And so if you are currently facing obstacles, if you are experiencing discouragement right now in your life, take heart. That just means that you are already on the road to success, at least if you learned how to to overcome those things. And I believe, again, the answer is found in our text. Hill would later write one more brief paragraph. He said, "I, I had the happy privilege of analyzing both Mr. Edison and Mr. Ford year by year over a long period of years, and therefore the opportunity to study them at close range, and so I speak from actual knowledge. When I say that I found no quality except persistence in either one of them, that even remotely suggested the major source of their stupendous achievements. So two of the most successful men that our country has ever known, how do you explain their success? They just didn't quit. They persisted. They hung in there until their objectives were realized. He also wrote that one of the most common causes of failure is the habit of quitting when one is overtaken by temporary defeat. Did you get that last two words? Temporary defeat. Grantland Rice was the one who interviewed Babe Ruth in 1927, rather. If he was around in 1970s, I'd like to have seen that. No, I wouldn't. He interviewed him in 1927. And this was right after the Yankees had clutched the American League pennant uh, one more time. And he asked, Babe, what do you do when you get into a batting slump? And most of you who have followed his career knew that Babe Ruth did not get into many batting slumps. But when he did, he said, what do you do to get out of the batting slump? And the Babe replied in his inimitable way. He said, I just keep going up there and I keep swinging at him. I think that's good advice for life. Stated in an extra biblical way. If you want to win, if you want to succeed in life, if you want to achieve your potential that God has put the seeds of greatness in each one of us, then you have to achieve anything worthwhile, then you're going to have to just get up there and keep swinging at them. You're going to have to persist. And there'll be times when that's very difficult. There'll be times when you're overcome by discouragement. There are times when you don't see how the way could possibly be clear for you to be able to succeed the way God has in mind success for you. Ty Cobb, said to be the greatest hitter of any major leaguer, had a career batting average of only 367. In other words, he failed to get a hit six, six times for every 10 times he went to the plate. Now, to the uninitiated, that doesn't sound like much of a success. 
But if you know anything about batting averages, you know that getting one hit out of every three times up is absolutely phenomenal. And it does take courage to get back in the batter's box and swing at it again, even though the last time all you hit was air. You cannot hit if you don't swing at it. And it does take courage to step back into the batter's box when you fail time after time. And if, even if you don't know anything about baseball, you know that you, you'll miss 100% of those that you don't swing at. I want to take those principles and drop them into the spiritual realm for just a few moments this morning. The Bible teaches how incredibly vital, how totally indispensable the quality of endurance really is. And we can find example after example in Old and New Testament of people who, on some occasions, did what was right, that they just didn't do it long enough. They didn't hang in there. They didn't keep on until the race had been finished, and they quit early. And we'll give some examples of that in just a moment. But there were also people who, who realized the need for persistence in their lives, the need for getting back in there and swinging at it one more time. Gentleman Jim Corbett was the heavyweight champion of the world during his day, and I believe he said it well. These words are often quoted and pro probably are familiar to the most, most of you. Corbett said, when your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired that you wish that your opponent would crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, get up and fight one more round, remembering that the man who always fights one more round is never defeated. He's exactly right. I never re read that statement without thinking about a fellow in the kingdom of Christ by the name of Ron Willingham. Some of you know that name. Many of you have perhaps even taken one of his courses in the local congregation somewhere. As I recall, they were called Adventures in Christian Living. I know Mia and I took that course when we lived in the Chattanooga area. Ron's company, entitled Integrity Systems, was one of the largest sales training organizations in the world at the time, and his clients included some of the biggest uh, companies in this country. Nearly 20,000 trainers were certified to conduct the uh, programs that he has written, and more than a million and a half people in 38 countries have taken his courses. And Ron achieved impre impressive success by anyone's standards. But if you know anything about Ron Willingham, you know that it wasn't always easy. He was confronted by a number of crushing crises in his life. Three times, in fact, it looked like he wasn't going to make it. And I'm not talking about a short-term business reversal. I'm not talking about a ha having a bad month or even a bad year. I'm talking about it looked like Ron was going to have to close his business, that he was going to be through forever. And he accepted full blame for those defeats, even though they were actually unavoidable. All three times he got caught in the jaws of an economic recession just when the foundation of his business had been poured and the cement on that foundation was still, was still wet and, and he was decked, but he was not out for the count. You see, he would not stay down. He struggled to his knees, he wobbled to his feet, and he started swinging one more round. Ron had one asset that wasn't for sale and that was not subject to foreclosure. And that asset was persistence. He refused to quit. And if you talk to him later, 
He never did resent his reversals. All of those tough times that he had, he looks back on those even today and says, those are the things that I learned the most from. Just the, He looked back, honestly surveyed the ups and downs of his life and his career, and he said, I thank God every day for those trials. Isn't that what James is saying in our text? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Ron knows what that's like. He knows what it's like when the rubber hits the road. He believed that those trials had given him perspective and strength that he would not have otherwise. And I wonder if that's where we are in our spiritual lives. Can we honestly thank God for the trials, the troubles that come into our life, knowing that if we will persist, if we, they will not cause us to, to be discouraged, but rather that we will learn lessons from and draw strength from those trials then we can look back on those and say, I, I, I thank you, Lord, that those things happened to me and that they happened for me. We understand that our, that our physical muscles grow larger and stronger only when we exercising them using resistance. But somehow when it gets to the spiritual realm, we kind of lose sight of that, that very real application. We don't believe that it requires the same dynamic, and that is resistance always builds persistence. And we've got to have that in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm. A couple of Ron's favorite scriptures are these. One of them is our text, James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And the other one is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. See if this sounds familiar. We also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character produces hope. So if we will learn that same lesson, that essential lesson, we'll be very close to victory. A little more effort, just a little more persistence, and what looked like failure can transform itself into spectacular success. We just need to keep on kicking the obstacles out of the way, and, and we have to develop a stubborn streak, and we have to have a refuse-to-quit-no-matter-what spirit about our lives. Here's a second principle that I want to share with you, and that is spiritual success carries the exact same price tag. You know, we preachers go around telling people how terrific and wonderful the Christian life is, and it is. John chapter 10, verse 10 is still in the Bible. And I still believe that it's true more today than ever before. That's, of course, where Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I believe that with all my heart. And that's why I just keep on preaching it. But what we don't tell you is sometimes how tough the Christian life can be. And I'm afraid, especially when people are considering becoming New Testament Christians or they're weighing in the balance. Am I willing to make this sacrifice? Am I willing to pay the price of my Christianity? That we don't help them count the, the cost. We we kind of want to, you know, put a, a beautiful rainbow image on, on the Christian life. We, we don't really tell people, hey, this can be tough. And there's going to be a cost. There's going to be a price that's going to have to be paid. I'm not talking about trying to talk people out of it. But I am talking about doing exactly what Jesus said we should do. And that is help people count the cost. A builder doesn't go out to build unless he first has determined the cost of the materials and the labor and decided, can I do this for a, a, in a cost-effective way? And Jesus said, you need to do the same thing when it comes to weighing and evaluating whether or not you are willing to live the Christian life and to live it to the very end of your life. Some of the lectures I hear and some of the religious books that I read would not pass the most elementary test of truth in advertising. 
Because they don't tell you that the Christian life can be tough. But here's the real truth. The Christian life is a great life. In fact, it's the greatest life there is. But it is not easy. Even the strongest of Christians sometimes stumble. And if you don't believe that, just look around or experience your own life or or look in Scripture and you'll see example after example of that. And that's why we can look around us and know that so many start, then quit. And that's because the Christian life does, in fact, demand persistence. C.S. Lewis wrote this. By the way, if C.S. Lewis wrote it, in my opinion, it's worth reading. He's written some great stuff, especially mere Christianity. But anyway, he wrote about the initial rush of excitement that comes with conversion. If you're a Christian today, I know that you experienced that. What it felt like to be baptized into Christ after you've made that good confession. And now know that you're embarking on the greatest spiritual venture there is. I'm going to live my life from this day forward as a New Testament Christian. So C.S. Lewis was talking about that excitement, that almost euphoria that we experience when we first make that decision to become a Christian. Here's what he wrote. It's quite right that you should feel that something terrific has happened to you. But then he warned, it's also important to understand that you won't always feel that excitement. Don't imagine it's going to all be an exciting adventure from now on. It won't. This is the push to start you off on your first bicycle. You'll be left to do lots of dogged pedaling later on, and no need to feel depressed about it either. It will be good for your spiritual leg muscles. I want you to know that, that I have no hidden agenda when I preach and teach. My aim is to sell you on Jesus to sell you on the Christian life, and I make no apology for that, and we need to make no mistake about it. But I also want you to know what you're buying into. I, I want you to know what the price is. As my friend Jerry Barber says, it's wrong to ask someone to sign a blank check and let us fill in the amount later. No, they need to know what the price of the check is. I, I want you to know that, that the Christian life can be difficult. Otherwise, you'll quit when the, when the going gets tough. And mark it down, it will get tough. James assures us of that in in the text. The Christian life, you see, comes with an eternal warranty. But it doesn't come with a guarantee of trouble-free operation in time. It doesn't say you're never going to have any difficulties living the Christian life. What the Bible does say straight from the lips of our Lord is simply this. You will have trouble in this life. John 16, verse 33. And if you don't believe that, Ask the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, he stands maybe as as the best of the bunch. I can't think of anyone other than the Lord himself who, who lived the Christian life in such a dedicated and consistent way as did the Apostle Paul. But in a paragraph that he wrote out of the 13 or 14 letters that he wrote, will leave you breathless. It'll leave you shaking your head. And he catalogs the catastrophes that he endured Not in spite of, but because of the fact that he lived his life as a Christian and as a proclaimer of the gospel. And and in that list, he includes things like floggings and stonings and shipwrecks and false accusations, sleeplessness and hunger, prison, near-death experiences. And, And the list just keeps going on and on. And you can read that entire list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and following. And when you read that, you want to ask, why, Paul? Why, why were you willing to do that? 
Why did you experience all of those things? One time stoned almost to death, and then the next day he gets up and goes right back into the very same city where he had been stoned. If Paul took those kinds of body shots, you and I can be guaranteed that we will too. That we're going to have some problems, that we're going to have some difficulties when it comes to living the Christian life consistently. See, as a Christian, you'll face problems that you just can't and that you don't understand. And you'll wonder where God is and why he doesn't do something. And I have to warn you, although I wish I didn't have to, that the most disheartening blows will come from those within the church and not from without. From those who ought to be allies and not adversaries. Look at what happened to Jesus, if you don't believe that's true. His best friend questioned the legitimacy of his ministry, Matthew 11, 2 and 3. An insider double-crossed him, Matthew 26. His most vocal supporter in private denied him in public. Jealous church leaders vilified him, saying that he was demon-possessed. Religious rulers falsely accused him. They illegally tried him, and they unjustly sentenced him. They mocked him. They slapped him. They beat him. They spat on him. And then they killed him. They nailed him to a cross, thinking... That'll shut him up, but you and I know better. Neither heartbreaking abandonment by his fair-weather friends, nor that kind of torturous treatment by death-dealing enemies ever diverted our Lord from his task. And that's the key to it. He had a mission, and he refused to quit until that mission had been accomplished. He took the worst of his enemies and his friends, so that he could give us God's best. If you have not surrendered your life to this Jesus, I sure hope you will. In a moment, we're going to sing a song to encourage you to make this the point in time when you make that decision, if you will. And if you've already made that decision, I hope that you'll stay on track until the race is finished and that you won't ever quit. And when your legs turn to jelly and your lungs scream for mercy... I hope and I pray that you'll just keep on running because when you quit, you're beaten. Blame it on your background. Blame it on your circumstances. Blame it on other people. Whatever you want to blame it on, you you still lose. But you're not beaten until you quit. So persist. And if if you'll do that, you'll win. You've got God's guarantee. You may have lagged in the last lap, but you'll win the race because God helps those who refused to quit. I want to leave you with one last passage, two of the greatest verses in my estimation that are found anywhere in Scripture. And this is the writer's inspired assurance that God himself will never leave us as we run the Christian race. This is Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. And we've already sung that beautiful song this morning, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And this is where that song comes from. Therefore, we also, the writer says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's what we call you to this morning, while we stand and while we sing.